Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. What an action-packed hour we have ahead of us. I'm going to be joined in the second half of this hour by an author and educator by the name of Justin Spears. I would like to say Justin and I go way, way back, but uh, truth is uh, we only go back, I don't know, I think I met him last year when I was at uh, FECON in Atlanta. I met him through a mutual friend, though. Uh, You might recognize the name Suzanne Sherman, who is one of my favorite freedom fighters of all. And yeah, anyway, he's got some great things to talk about as an educator, I, I should say, Formerly as a public school teacher, but now uh, he is an educator in a different light and has just written a book. We're going to be talking more about that. Uh, It it talks a lot about uh, where the public school system, the government run school system is falling short. Unless you think he's only complaining. He also has some very, I think, workable solutions to suggest as well. Okay, let's see other things. Oh, I I want to throw this reminder out there just because uh, coming up on Friday, the 28th. Jeanette Finnicum will be speaking at Liberty Hall in far west Utah. I hope you get a chance to, to go. Uh, I shouldn't say she's going to be presenting so much as she will be there probably taking questions and answers. But they'll actually be screening uh, another volume of the uh, Lavoy Finnicum Dead Man Talking video series. Marvelous, marvelous stuff produced by the Center for Self-Governance. And boy, there's just nothing like hearing things in, in Lavoy's own words. The guy was more than capable of making the case for why he would stand up, why he would take the stand that he did. And unfortunately, there's just very few people who've had the chance to hear that for themselves. So if you want to be one of those people, well, there's no cost associated with it. You can uh, you can show up at Liberty Hall. I'll have some more details coming up tomorrow. And of course, uh, Jeanette Finnegan will be joining me tomorrow as well. Let's see, there was one other thing. Okay, now I'm going to jump right into it here. So the Democratic candidates were debating last night. I don't watch these debates as a general rule, and it's not because I'm oh so above all of that, <laughs> all that dross. Yeah, so, you know, um, I, frankly, it doesn't interest me because I don't want to see a bunch of strangers argue about how they're going to take my money and control my life. I, I, you know, with the hopes that, yeah, maybe I'll even get a tattoo of one of them. I'll be one of those self-branding tax cattle. Nah, that's not me. But I do, instead of watching the debate, I do pop onto Twitter from time to time, which is almost as good because there's a nice running commentary and sometimes kind of a savage commentary at that that's going on uh, describing, okay, here's this person just stepped on their own nose or this person, you know, put words in in their mouth in in a way they didn't want to. And so there's that entertainment factor, but uh, really, yeah, I don't have a lot to, I don't have a lot of interest in it. I'm grateful for those who do, though, and I'm especially thankful for those who not only have an interest but can come away with a solid take. Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research is one of those individuals and has what I consider one of the best commentaries that I have come across this election season about what's really going on up there on the stage when everybody's mean-mouthing each other and, and you know proclaiming why they are the one best qualified to run our lives. His article is titled, The Strangest Thing About the Debate. Listen to what he has to say. 
He says, it struck me about one one hour into what Politico calls the snarling incoherence of the latest Democratic presidential debate that was painfully hard to follow. And he asks the question, what precisely was so painful? It was not what divided this gaggle of politicians vying for your your affection, rather. It was what united them. They all agree that their job is to have a plan for your life. This is the source of the pain. How did it happen that all these candidates have come to believe that it is their job to plan the economy, manage your finances, fix your job, improve your wages, get you to the doctor, get your kids educated, keep you off drugs, make you equal to others, give you climate justice, grant you vacation time, and a thousand and ten other things? That this is what they are supposed to do is not even questioned. And if you listen carefully, you will see that all of them there agree that there is only one direction for government power. More. Everything without exception can be solved with more money, more power, more bureaucrats, more engagement, more plans, more intelligence, more focus. No longer is the presidency the person who presides over the affairs of state. All of life has become an affair of state. Tucker says the presidency isn't just an administrator of things related to the federal government. He or she is the head of the whole country and everything and everyone in it, plus sizable parts of the rest of the world. So they're all up there talking about what? They're talking about what they plan to do with your life and your money. And he says that's what was so painful. They have no clue about any possible limit to their planning. All the while, every single person watching this debate has his or her own plans for life. Real people are planning their futures, navigating the job market, dealing with the boss or trying to find good employees, watching their 401ks, talking with their financial planners, figuring out whether to get another degree or go to work, wondering about partners, thinking about children, worrying about their kids' education, considering whether to raise children in a religion and which one, when to, vaca- to, when to take a vacation and where, What to do about an uncle's drinking problem, worrying about aging parents, whether to rent or buy, and a million other things. He says we're all trying to figure it out. It's called life planning. We all do it every day. The underlying institution that makes our plans realizable is that we have freedom and the right to manage our own lives and resources. This is essential to what it means to live the good life. And he says the trouble with the seven people on the stage last night is that they have little or no regard for our personal plans. It's their plans for us that matter. Our lives are mere abstractions to them. We are there to be manipulated into granting them money and votes. Once they get the power via democratic means, they're done with us. Our only job is to cuff up money, cough up money rather, and comply. That presumption is why the evening seemed so creepy. They talk about clumps of voters, not real people. They talk about the working class or African-American women or minority populations, the underemployed, the underinsured, the immigrants, ad infinitum, ad infinitum rather. But he says these are categories of voters, people being drafted against their will into voting blocks, not actual living, breathing, choosing individuals. And with that comes a preposterous game of pretending that they know things they cannot really know. That point was obvious in the question about what to do about pandemic disease should the U.S. be hit. They all strutted and pounced and pronounced on the issue as if they knew exactly the right path. Not one person said a normal thing like, well, there's a lot we don't know about the coronavirus. 
and we are all sifting through information as it becomes available. Each of us wants to stay safe, and all of us have a strong interest in taking every precaution. See, such a statement would be a shock because it flies in the face of this, the ethos of this debate, which is that we are electing an all-knowing, all-powerful, godlike brain rather than a mere head of state. So Jeff Tucker says, where did this idea come from? That the president is not just the head of state, but also the head of the whole society and everything within it. Now, he says it's been around for a very long time, but only recently has it been made so explicit and become an open and conventional presumption behind all the political rhetoric. Now, Jeff Tucker says the first time he experienced it so overtly was back in 2015 when he heard the second campaign speech by... Donald Trump, when he was first seeking the Republican nomination, he stood in front of an audience and talked as if he were running to become not a constitutional head of state in a republic governed by the rule of law. He was running to be the CEO of America. And Jeff Tucker says it was strange and alarming. It never occurred to him that there might be limits on his power that would be justified. And he says the speech rattled me. And it struck me as the inauguration of a new era in politics. Well, here we are nearly five years later. And guess what? The Democrats speak exactly like him. They've learned from Trump as good students. They're all running to be the new CEO of the whole country, just with a different set of priorities. They all have a plan for your life. Their plans naturally overrule your plans because they will have the power and the might of government behind them. You merely have things like human rights that are in a country that hosts the largest and most powerful government ever rather vulnerable to rampant violation. So why do we put up with it? If you had a coworker who spoke to you about your life and your plans the way members of the political class do as a matter of habit, you would avoid him like the coronavirus. You would plan your lunch hour to miss him or be on the phone when he walked by your desk and maybe maneuver behind the scenes to get him pushed out. A person like that would be seen as threatening, even pathological. And yet somehow we put up with it from politicians. We watch with bemusement and think, huh, what the heck is wrong with these people? Why are they so lacking in the normal human grace of willing to live and let live? It's because they have all drank the Kool-Aid of power. They want it desperately and will do anything to get it. And truly, he asks, does anyone actually believe that this gang of political performers has access to some magic machine that will improve your life better than you can? Some people do believe this, but fewer every day. And he says if this political season has any merit to it at all, it's that it's made the point that their presumption of omniscience and omnipotence is a dangerous path. This is one of the best commentaries I think I've come across in any election cycle, and it couldn't be more timely. I'll have a link to it in the show notes when I post this for podcast. This is Loving Liberty, and we'll be back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I do have time to, to take some calls in the in this segment, if you'd like to join the conversation. Came across a story recently, maybe you've seen this too. It, it actually took place last September, but it's a an Orlando police officer putting a six-year-old girl in handcuffs, arresting her. Now, I'm not just saying, you know, took her into custody and took her down to juvie. He arrested her and took her to juvie. And the video has come out. I'm going to play just a little quick excerpt of this for you. You don't you don't see a lot, but this is this is him marching her to the police car. 
and and you can you can hear you know the the anguish in this kid's voice. <laughs> You probably get the point. She's, you know, he's walking her to the car. There's another officer. This is the body cam from the other officer that's that's filming him, putting her into the car. Um, what did she do, right? Well, she probably took an AR-15 to school and was preparing to shoot up her kindergarten. And that's why he had to handcuff her for her safety and his and, you know, take her away to juvie. Um, no. No, actually. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, it wasn't even handcuffs because handcuffs were too small I'm sorry, too large for this girl. They had to put zip ties on her and, uh, you know, the, the flex cuffs that they'll often use like in riots. And then led the little girl to the car and, uh, you know, took her away to the juvenile assessment center. What has she done? Well, she had thrown a tantrum earlier in the day where it is said that she had kicked and punched three school employees, leading to her arrest on a charge of misdemeanor battery according to her arrest report. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. I've seen kids get out of control. I've had my own kids get out of control before. The thought of bringing the police into the situation never occurred to me, but hey, when you're dealing with school, you're dealing with an institution that uh, leans on the state to make sure that its authority is respected. The girl was calm by the time that this officer showed up with another officer to detain, cuff, and arrest her. What's funny is they told him this girl is only six years or yeah, she's only six years old. And you know what his offer his 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 uh, comment was? His comment was, well, now she's broken the record. She's not the youngest kid that he has ever arrested, or she was the youngest kid he'd ever arrested. Up to that point, I think he had uh, had arrested one who was seven years old. So he was kind of proud. He just had, had broke the record. Now, what happened in the fallout after this was this officer was fired from the reserve unit that he was a part of. And I'm sure it's because the optics of this looked really, really bad. I mean, how can it not look pretty pretty ugly you know the police are arresting and taking a six-year-old who was having a temper tantrum you know to juvie hall wow well apparently he tried to arrest a seven-year-old boy earlier that day but uh, but was stopped from doing so and um apparently this officer had had faced charges of uh, child abuse he he was arrested for child abuse, uh, accused of causing injuries to his seven-year-old son. That was after findings from two different departments and their uh, Division of Child and Family Services. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you the part that bugs me. More than even seeing him put the, the cuffs on this girl and lead her away, it's bad enough that there's a guy who can just click his heels and, and I'm just doing my job. But you know what's more disturbing is the number of people who feel like it's their duty to strain and grasp for any reason to believe that, well, this is the right thing. And, you know, the most common thing that I'm hearing is, well, if parents would do their job and not outsource this to the state, it wouldn't matter. 
What a bizarre deflection. Oh, yeah, well, surely this is just society's fault for telling the police they had to get involved in the first place. Look, as a police officer, he has discretion. He has common sense, or at least he's supposed to. I just I don't understand it. It, It's I don't know what's more disturbing that you can find a mindless automaton who will do whatever he thinks is within policy, including, you know, flex cuffing a little girl and taking her off to juvie six years old, a new record. Or the people who look for a reason to say, no, this is this is good and proper. Why, we'd be a society of chaos without men like him. I get it. The law and order types often will err on law and order on the side of safety. But wow. Is there ever a point where we where you'd say, hey, that's not right? Maybe when he's, you know, arresting a toddler, you know, a, a little four year old in a pull up diaper. Is there a point? Is there any point? All right. I'll hop off the soapbox. 801-331-8113. Hello there. Okay, looks like my phone actually may be uh, acting up here because I am not hearing any audio. I will have to reset the phone. My apologies to whoever's calling. If I were betting, I'm guessing it's probably Rathbite, but that's just a hunch. Just a hunch. He's usually got the quickest dialing fingers. So I I share that with you in in hopes that, uh, I don't know. It's going to make some people mad. Actually, my my stance will probably make more people mad than what the officer actually did. But in all seriousness, is there a point where you would say, whoa, that is not something that a police officer should be doing, especially where the girl was calmed down by the time she was sorry. She was remorseful by the time that uh, police arrived. I've seen a lot of kids twist off and flip out and throw tantrums. Never have I thought that, uh, boy, you know, it'd be a good idea to get the cops down here and you know, make sure that these kids are, uh, you know, held accountable and 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 brought back under control. And you have to wonder, was it, were the school administrators who brought the police in? You know, he was a school resource officer at the time he did this. Was this, you know, part of their scared straight strategy? Again, part of the deflection people will use is, well, now, Brian, remember, you know, they had a kid who went and shot up the school there in uh, Parkland, Florida, and. Yeah, I'm sure she was just a budding school shooter just waiting to go off, too. Again, at what point would you say, wow, that's really questionable? I think by statute in many states, the the youngest age that you could even charge a child with a crime, even if they do cause harm, would be around age seven or eight. I don't know. If, if this is the kind of thing that uh, if you get a contact high from this kind of authority, uh, I don't know what to tell you other than, well, you know, <laughs> you're in for a real treat because it's only going to get worse. But if this kind of heel clicker mentality causes you to go, wow, <laughs> we need to rein that in. Yeah, I'd, I'd suggest uh, there, this is this is a good time to do it. It may be too late. Maybe your best recourse, if you really are concerned about things like this, is get your kids out of the schools. Remove them from the reach of the bureaucracy that would excuse or would even invite this kind of behavior. And I got to wonder about the second officer. You know, I mean, come on, with with all love and respect to, to those good police officers out there. Why wasn't this second officer interposing himself and saying, whoa. Do we really need to cuff this little kid? I mean, K-12 
kids sometimes have to be taken places by cops after an accident, after domestic abuse or things like that. There's ways that it can be done without, yep, we're putting you in cuffs and, you know, arresting you and taking you to juvie. It just seems very disproportionate. And if anything, it just seems like this is to remind her of her place in society. And and, and by extension, all of us of our place in society, we are nothing but little children who must be constantly told and scolded and, you know, corrected by Big Mother, sometimes in the form of her uniformed officers coming and threatening us with violence and taking us away. All right. I've got this out of my system. I feel a little bit better, but I'll post a link to the story. You can check out the video clip for yourself. Where is the line? Where would you say, whoa, no more than that? Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I am very happy to welcome my friend Justin Spears. Joining me through the magic of technology. How are you, Justin? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you aboard, and I was I was introducing you to the audience earlier in the hour, just teasing that you would be coming on to discuss your new book. Uh, I said, Justin is an educator, but but that doesn't begin to hint at, at some of your background in education. So would you mind taking just a moment and just kind of walking us through uh, the, the process of how you came to be doing what you're doing right now? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a non-traditional teacher here in the state of Indiana. I actually have a bachelor's degree in marketing, worked in sales and marketing for a while, and then went through a transition to teaching program uh, at a local college. And I've been teaching for a little over a decade. I've taught a variety of classes, business, uh, marketing, management, finance. And then I went into a technology-based position uh, for a period of time. Uh, A lot of schools here in Indiana started to go what are called one-to-one with iPads or Google Chrome books. And so I helped kind of roll that out. And I went back into the classroom as a teacher, uh, teaching social studies. And as, as of now, I am teaching in an online platform uh, with a, uh, a school here in the state. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I've gotten to where I am today. Okay. And you're keeping company with some really wonderful people. I noticed you had mentioned uh, Carrie McDonald, who has also been a guest on this program a few times. What an incredible advocate for education she is. And I understand you're rubbing shoulders with her as well. Yeah, absolutely. Carrie has uh, started out on a, a venture called unschool.school, and I've been working uh, with her to basically what we want to do is establish people um, who see themselves as educators that don't necessarily have the title of teacher or certification, but have a wealth of experience to offer uh, with learners that, that want to learn what those educators have to offer and just let that organic, natural experience of learning take hold. And so we've been working through uh, some pilot camps and getting people enrolled on the website. And I list her as absolutely one of my influences in writing my book. Uh, as I came through her reading with Fee and now in some of her other outlets and her newsletter, um, she is a great advocate for uh, what true education and not necessarily schooling should look like. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, first of all, the title of your book is? 
Failure, the history and results of America's school system. And a funny little story about that, I changed the title kind of at the uh, 11th hour. I had the word uh, or the phrase broken school system. And I got into a discussion online with some people about whether or not our school system in America truly is broken or not, because some would uh, maintain that the school system is not broken. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do. And so I uh, kind of agreed with that after I rethought it. And so I decided to remove that from the title. Okay. Tell me a little bit about this book. First of all, what was it that prompted uh, the, the decision to sit down and actually write a book about the, the failure of the school system? Was, was there a, an event or catalyst in your life that, that prompted you to, to say, I got to do this? Yeah, so there, the book is a two-part book, uh, part one and part two, and so there were basically two things that kind of resonated with me and, and drove me to write it. One was I felt like the the story of America's schooling isn't widely known and isn't talked about enough among common people. I mean, obviously, you've got you know educational historians that know the story about it, but when you talk to the average parent and you say, "Tell me, you know, about our school system and where it came from," uh, it's just not something that I don't think is on the top of the radar. So I wanted to write something that I saw as accessible uh, to kind of filling parents in a little bit about the roots of this, because I really truly maintain that in order to understand where we are today, you have to understand where we've come from. And if we just simply pick at standardized testing and low teacher pay and morale and, you know, uh, busing and all these other issues that we're really just approaching the symptoms of a larger problem. And so I wanted to do that in the first part. And then the second part, I, I really just wanted to share my reflections of my time in the classroom. I've been in the classroom now. I've had, you know, I haven't counted, but, you know, over hundreds of hundreds of students now. Uh, and, and I've got stories and I wanted to share those stories. So in part two, I wanted to kind of tell a little bit more about the results of where we are with schooling based on some of my personal experiences in the classroom. Okay. Again, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Justin Spears and we are talking about his book, uh, Failure. Let's, let's talk for a moment about the first part of this book, because you're right. When it comes to understanding, well, how did we get the system that we have today of government-run schools being the default setting uh, as opposed to the exception? Uh, walk us through the process by, by which uh, public schooling, by, by which I mean government schooling, came to be the norm. Yeah, it really was a, a long, drawn-out process, but it started early on. You can see some elements of this going back to you know Plymouth Rock and Pilgrims and early on settlements in the New World. Um, you know there were standards for uh, education set up amongst uh, you know those groups that that came over, and even in the early colonial days, uh, there were different colonies that took different positions and stances on what uh, it should look like. But but the reality behind that, even you know at that period of time, is it was still left up to individual communities to decide what to do. Uh, but as we advance into, uh, you know, the 1800s is, is really where I like to pick it up and where I put a lot of emphasis in the book on uh, is with uh, specifically Horace Mann. And that name, again, may ring a bell to some people. There's probably a Horace Mann school in every school district in America, uh, rightfully so, for the work that and, and fingerprints that he left on America's schooling system. Uh, as the Secretary of Education in the state of Massachusetts, uh, he really pushes for uh, mandatory compulsive schooling, and that was an idea that he borrowed from the Prussian model, uh, which had been developed not only by uh, the Prussians, but also the French as well with what was going on over in Europe. 
Okay, and this this is where I learned about this probably, I'm guessing about 15 years ago. I attended a lecture where someone actually went into the background of where Horace, Horace Mann got his ideas for what would become the model for American public schools. And I was astonished to hear that uh, the, the way that the Prussians envisioned schools, the purpose for which they envisioned them, was uh, was very i'm just going to use the word authoritarian um talk to me about what what was the prussian model built around what was the the ideology behind it yeah no and you're absolutely right in using that terminology you know our our, um school system even our modern school system going back to the roots of when we're talking about here uh in the mid 1800s is antithetical to freedom and liberty it is very authoritarian um it's funny that you say that johan gottlieb fichte who was a uh prussian uh leader in this uh movement of compulsive schooling identifies five key points which i lay out in the book uh basically a uniform system of schools needed to establish a common instruction. Uh, So again, you kind of see the individual being uh, removed from this, Uh, that schooling would operate uh, as mandatory and available to everyone. Opting out wouldn't be an option, Uh, that it would be designed uh, purposely, that a school curriculum uh, would have the ability to fashion and indoctrinate students uh, in a way that is wished by the the government, Uh, that the goal of the curriculum should be to create obedient, popular uh, willing to subordinate themselves to the state, and that uh, if the indoctrination were successful, that society could eventually run itself in the government's vision. So it doesn't take much uh, imagination here to understand uh, what the, the goal is of this type of school system, and that is to eliminate uh, free thought and, and free will and to become uh, obedient and subordinate to the state. Right. Put everybody pretty much on the same page and at the same time uh – teach them their place, which is, as you mentioned, subordinate. Yeah, and you see that um, in today's school system, right, with, um, you know, whatever the the topic or situation might be, you know, here recently, it's been uh, uh, transgendered rights with, you know, you're going to accept and allow this person to have to enter into this bathroom or this locker room, and you're going to have to accept this person's lifestyle, um, you know, to to live a certain way or be addressed by these pronouns, um, you know, all the way down to the, the, the thought of what is being taught from a curriculum standpoint, you can't object object to uh, the teaching of the way that the Civil War was fought or the reasons behind it or, um, you know, fill in the blank, um, you know, with the curriculum. It's being presented in this way, and this is what you need to know. You need to shut up and know your place, and that's kind of how school operates. So was, was Horace Mann of uh, kind of an authoritarian bent? Obviously, he liked the ideas and came back and, and, and essentially sold that idea to the American public. Was, was he more or less? a guy who got a little taste of authority and liked it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. There's a story of him, um, you know, basically uh, ordering up the idea of compulsive education for the state of Massachusetts for a seat in the Senate um, and or in the House of Representatives one. I forget which one it was off the top of my head. Um, But there's also a story that I tell in the book, too, where um, a neighboring governor, I believe it was in Connecticut, came in and said, uh, we're going to undo uh, one of these laws that was done by a friend of man 
Evans, the previous governor, and man just railed on him, uh, calling him vile, evil, stupid, backwards uh, for having to dare to undo this forced uh, schooling idea. And so, yeah, I think definitely he was one that, you know, as he got notoriety and power, he got a taste of that and took it to to the max. Okay, we have got to take a very quick break. My guest is Justin Spears, and we are discussing his book about, uh, well, about how we got from there to here and also what we can do. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about compulsory schooling. You know an idea is good, right, when it's got to be compulsory? (laughs) This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. My guest is Justin Spears, and Justin is the author of a book which I, Justin, I was thinking your book was was soon to be released. No, it's actually available. Failure, the history and results of America's school system. I'll have a link to Amazon where listeners can check this out for themselves. I'll put that in the show notes, but uh, let's talk about compulsory schooling laws. Because that that was one of the ideas that I know Horace Mann brought back and and others picked up the torch and carried forward. Talk to us about how compulsory school became the norm in a country that prided itself on being free. Yeah, so you know that's a, a pretty interesting thing because it's it's fairly fragmented. Like I said uh, earlier, it, it really takes you know a course of about two hundred years to work its way through. Uh, you know, you've got the old Deluder Act um, back in I believe sixteen forty seven ish somewhere in there. I may have that date wrong off the top of my head. Uh, but but basically, early on uh, laws were really just about ensuring that uh, families were trying to move away from where, you know, oftentimes uh, children were working, you know, in, in and around their, their home and their uh, town uh, and whatnot to, to getting some kind of common, you know, education, uh, liter- you know, the old three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, and then as you kind of ex- uh, move forward into the, the Horace Mann uh, days, I think it's 1852 uh, is the first law in the state of Massachusetts that under force of uh, threat of force uh, by the state, uh, you know, for, um, you know, not sending your child to school, you could be, you know, fined or uh, punished for that, uh, that we see, you know, then it just really starts to take off. And, and another uh, name that I came across in my research that I didn't realize was uh, Calvin Stowe, who was Harriet Beecher Stowe's husband. Uh, he was a, uh, a biblical professor, I believe, at a college, but he was also very much pro-public uh, education and spoke very glowingly uh, of the Prussian system. He pushed hard for that in the state of Ohio uh, and worked with the legislature there to pass compulsive law school. So as laws start to develop in um, the, the New England area, they quickly begin to spread through other parts of the country. Yeah, it's, you know, I, again, I think about what it took for for the people of this nation to move westward and to tame the savage land and, you know, to, to settle this land. And, and that, that spirit of rugged individualism, I'm sure, played a huge role. But very quickly, as each state came into the Union, as, as every, every place became civilized, hot on the heels of that civilization came mandatory schooling. 
Yeah. And, and I think when you kind of look at it, um, you know, either backwards or from, from there up to where we are today, you can see that erosion away. Right. And, and I've maintained in a lot of my different writings, whether they be in um, blogging or I think this comes through in, in this book here as well is, and I've said this many times, freedom is very, very difficult. Um, you know, rugged individualism, as you said, freedom and liberty. If you were to really strip away all of the um, tentacles of government and regulations and, you know, different things that influence our lives on a daily basis and allow people just the opportunity to kind of make it on their own, which is really, you know, what the absence of government, you know, is really what true freedom and liberty would, would be like, in my opinion, it would be extremely difficult, you know, to, to make people, um, Put, be put in a position where they would have to depend on each other. Imagine that, Brian. Imagine living in a in a world where you would rely on your neighbors um, and community to, to help you through as opposed to looking to uh, Uncle Sam for a handout or uh, help on, on a problem. Uh, but yes, that, that spreads very quickly, and, and education is certainly, I believe, a vehicle of that. Talk to me about, uh, you write in your book about uh School buildings, why school buildings are created the way that they're created. And I I found this very fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the things that really resonated with me in my time in buildings is when you travel around the country and you look at different school buildings, of course, you know, everyone is different. But there are some, I think, some common themes and things that I see as I've traveled into buildings, at least mostly here in the state of Indiana. Uh, and that is that they they really aren't designed uh, to be able to help learning flourish. You know, they're dark, they're, they're dim, they're drab. There's many rooms that uh, don't have natural light that come into them uh you know the 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 walls are kind of plastered with these pseudo uh, you know motivational posters but nobody in the building walking around will you know believe a word of what is said there's these codes that are posted up about how to live by you know this uh, particular school's code and it, it just doesn't um it just doesn't hold up and so it's almost like you can feel it when the kids walk into the building just the, the life being sucked out of them uh and you look at these classrooms with desks and rows and everything's focused onto the teacher and we've replaced the chalkboard with the whiteboard and we've replaced the drop down screen with the touch screens and you know all of that's been prettied up but at the end of the day it's still doing the same thing which is turning the student into a robot amazing amazing i mean i i wrote an article or a commentary here a few years back comparing schools and prisons which i know other people have made that comparison too but uh, i actually attended a school william penn elementary and so yeah i did my time at william penn you know that was kind of the joke (laughs) among me and my classmates but boy did it make people angry when you start pointing out but look you know the kids are under constant surveillance they've got armed government workers now that are a part of their day-to-day school life bells ring to tell you when to stand or when to sit and you know it's very regimented they serve terms right you know anyway people have no sense of humor when you point this kind of stuff out yeah and i know you and i were talking off air a little while ago and and one of the um things that really woke me up to that was a man named john taylor gatto who was a former teacher of the year in new york um two-time teacher of the year who uh kind of woke had his awakening and said what am i doing and went on to write two uh pieces that were highly influential for me uh weapons of mass instruction and dumbing us down and i've probably listened through or read those multiple multiple times and he 
does a fantastic job. He just has such a way of words to get the reader uh, to understand. And that was really kind of what I was trying to do in this as well as to what these physical buildings are doing to our children. Wow. Let's talk a little bit more about John Taylor Gatto, because that, like you, that was a huge awakening to me. Uh, John Taylor Gatto, of course, has, has uh, since passed away. But what was his contribution and, and what to, what did he do to impact American education? Yeah, you know, his uh, his movement in the uh, early 90s to just kind of come out and say, look, I've been in this thing for a long time. I've been praised with awards and um, accolades. I've you know, I think he was borrowed by Columbia Teachers College uh, to be a guest lecturer for a period of time. So it really gave him credibility in my eyes in terms of, you know, this is a guy that's been in the trenches. He's been in the inner city. He's been working with these kids. He's sees what's going on and he feels sick about it. And when you read on his website and he talks about this in one of the updated versions, I believe of dumbing us down about the mounds of letters that he has gotten from educators and parents, just thanking him for opening their eyes uh, all across the world. He has toured and talked. Uh, It it really has had a profound impact um, on people all over the world. Uh, But for me in particular, as I really kind of had this burning in my stomach, you know, kind of feeling that something isn't right. But as I really read what Gatto had to say, it was like, this just reaffirms everything and gave me the courage to be able to write this. Uh, because, you know, look, at the end of the day, this isn't popular, obviously, amongst uh, teachers. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are teachers, and I'm very careful to say, look, this is not a criticism of you. I know you're going to take it personal because you're in this industry. Uh, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we've got to have this dialogue. We've got to move on from just talking about poor teacher pay and standardized testing. Are those things awful? Yes. But we're doing our ourselves a disservice if we stop right there. We've got to get deeper to the heart of the matter. And that's what I think Gatto does such a fantastic job of doing. Okay, we've got about 90 seconds left here, but um, I know that you also cover solutions. This isn't just a book complaining about the school system. You do have some ideas for solutions. What are the directions people can look for solutions to these these, uh, failures of public schooling? Yeah, and really it's as simple as this. It's what works best for your family and your scenario. If that means self-directed education, I definitely talk about that. That is an option. Unschooling, which of course we mentioned earlier, Carrie writes about charters and vouchers are definitely an option. And look, at the end of the day, if the local public school is working for you and your family, so be it. But just stop forcing everybody to have to go there. Uh, Open it up for more freedom and opportunity. Here, here. Okay. Do you have a website that people can visit if they would uh, like to to see more of your writings or learn more about you or your book? Yes, sir. Uh, Ed Failure, uh, all one word, edfailure.com has all of my previous writings. I'm going to put up a link on there as well to the Amazon uh, so you can buy the paperback or the Kindle version of the book. And uh, I blog uh, on there as well so you can read that as well. Okay, and I will have a link. In fact, I have a link right now ready to go uh, when I post this for podcast shortly after our conversation has ended. And unfortunately, we are fast coming up against the clock here. So, Justin Spears, thank you so much for, for joining me today on Loving Liberty. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for today's broadcast. I'll have the podcast up, and you can enjoy it and share it with your friends here in just a very short time. Stick around. Kate Daly is on the way next.
Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network.